0: This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more.
1: Previously on White Lies...
2: This man just read our names, all of our names, and then he said, there's a boat waiting for you. Get everybody.
3: We were met by Cuban gunboats, black, foul-looking, sinister-looking things. Cuban government calls them common delinquents, antisocials, vagrants, and bums, but said they were free to leave Cuba. But we'll continue to provide an open heart and open arms to refugees seeking freedom. They get out of their boats and they walk through the water,
4: and they're yours. What do you do with them? The way Al Pacino tells it, it's 1978, and he's walking down Sunset Boulevard in Los Angeles, and he sees that this revival theater is showing a new print of a big gangster movie from 1932. He's always wanted to see the film. It's based loosely on the life of Al Capone. The title character is Tony Camonti, an Italian immigrant rising through the ranks of Chicago's criminal underworld during Prohibition. Tommy guns, shootouts, the anti-hero always narrowly escaping the cops in an increasingly violent world. Early in the film, a newspaperman sets the scene.
3: You know what's happening? This
5: town is up for the grabs, get me? They'll be shooting each other like rabbits for the control of the booze business. Do you get it? It'll be just like war.
4: Pacino loves the film. He calls his former agent and producer and says he wants to do a remake. First they try a straight remake setting the film back in Prohibition era Chicago, but the script isn't working. Then they have an idea. What if you made it contemporary? set the film not in Chicago, but in Miami. Miami in the late 70s was awash in drug-related violence. In fact, it got so bad that in 1979, there was an AP story syndicated across the U.S. where officials from the city actually compared Miami to Chicago in the 20s, calling these drug wars the work of the so-called cocaine cowboys, the warring drug cartels mostly from Columbia who vied for control of the city's cocaine trade. So they transposed this gangster film to present-day Miami, And they hired Oliver Stone
3: to write the picture. 1980, Miami, where the American dream had a price tag, and only one man in a million
5: was hungry enough to pay. Al Pacino is
1: Scarface. Scarface. If you've ever seen it, you might remember the mounds of cocaine, the brutal violence, the innumerable shootouts, and the infamous bloody ending, when the besieged Pacino comes out of his office with a grenade launcher to blow away his enemies.
6: Do you want to play rough? Shout hello to my little
5: friend!
1: But what's notable for our story isn't all that. It's how the film begins. It begins with text on screen describing the Mariel boat lift. The Castro had opened the port of Mariel to Cubans in the U.S. to come pick up their relatives. That, within days, thousands of boats were headed to the harbor. And then it says that Castro was, quote, forcing the boat owners to carry back with them not only their relatives, but the dregs of his jails, end quote. Next, it shows a snippet of a speech from Castro at the very beginning of the boat lift. Castro says of the Mariel refugees, quote, We don't need them. We don't want them. And then the title sequence, which is comprised entirely of documentary and news footage of the boat lift itself. Overcrowded shrimp boats, people streaming onto the docks of Key West, families reunited, an army barrack as a refugee processing center, lines of men waiting to be interviewed by INS officials. And the first scene, it's Tony Montana, Al Pacino's character, being interviewed by skeptical immigration officials.
3: you ever been in jail, Tony? Hey, jail, no.
1: But spoiler alert, the movie makes clear very quickly that Tony has in fact been in jail and that he is in fact a ruthless killer brought to the U.S. on the Mariel Boatlift.
4: The Mariel Boatlift is incredibly complicated to parse out. 125,000 refugees arrive in this country and they arrive in this country in a matter of months, carrying with them almost nothing but the clothes on their backs. In the country they're coming from, it's basically an enemy of the United States, a country with which the U.S. has virtually no diplomatic relations. In this unexpected wave, it's a total shock to the system. For plenty of Americans, all these Cubans arriving all at once, it feels a little like an invasion. And then there were the stories about who these refugees even were. At the beginning of Scarface, with the veracity of documentary footage from the boat lift, there's the claim that 25,000— one out of every five Mario Cubans had a criminal record. A police bulletin we found among the files in the basement of the Atlanta Legal Aid Society said 40,000 Mario Cubans had some criminal background. And in the first weeks of the boat lift, an INS official told People Magazine that 85% of the refugees were convicts. 85%? In our years of trying to track down the men on the roof, we've heard one thing over and over and over again. It's the distillation of this rumor in its purest form. So Fidel just emptied the prisons, essentially. What
5: Castro had done was empty the jails in Cuba. Castro used
1: that to empty his prisons.
5: Fidel emptied out his jails. Fidel Castro
7: allowed the prisons to be emptied. Castro was all too happy to empty out his prisons and get rid of his problems and, you know, send them to the
4: United States. (music) The story that Castro had emptied his jails to fill the boat lift has been told so often and with such conviction that, of course, it must be true. But what if the story was more theater than history? What was it about the boat lift? What was happening in 1980 in Miami and throughout the country that made the story so compelling? Why did it feel so true to so many people? Today, we go to Miami to find out. From NPR, this is White Lies. I'm Chip Brantley. And I'm Andrew Beck Grace.
8: This message comes from NPR sponsor LiveRight, publishers of Left for Dead: Shipwreck, Treachery, and Survival at the Edge of the World by Eric J. Dolan. The true story of five castaways abandoned on the Falkland Islands during the War of 1812. Available wherever books are sold.
7: Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington,
1: the campaign trail and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened. We tell you why
6: it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes.
0: You got the address? Yep.
1: Miami is a sprawling place. Uh, Nearly 3 million people live in Miami-Dade County in 34 different cities. Well, actually, it's 19 cities, 6 towns, and 9 villages. But anyway, when we're there reporting, we spend a lot of time stuck in the car.
8: This route avoids a crash on Florida 826 East. You are on the fastest route. You will arrive at 2.53 p.m.
1: Oh, good. 45 minutes from now. Chip's road snack of choice is improbably gummy worms. I think it's incredibly juvenile, but that's his business. Me, I'm a classic combos kind of guy. And by classic, I mean the pretzel and cheddar, not that cracker aberration. Our producer, Connor, well, he's a throwback snacker, Funyuns. I don't know about that one either.
8: Is this it?
6: You've arrived at your destination.
8: In the early days of, of Marielle, it was very informal. We're at the far northern end of the county,
1: sitting on Mimi Whitefield's back patio. Mimi had just started her journalism career in 1980. She was working for a newswire service and was one of the first reporters to cover the Mario Boatlift.
8: The word came that, hey, two ships are on their way back from Cuba and they, they have people. So, you know, we didn't really quite know what to expect, but, you know, a photographer and I headed down to Key West.
1: Mimi and a photographer arrived in Key West as the first boats came in.
8: We actually got there before any authorities arrived, so we just jumped aboard the boat and started interviewing the people. Welcome to the United States. They would take the people into the Cuban Civic Center there in Key West. The ladies from the Cuban community would make them sandwiches. You could talk to them. And then the U.S. authorities swung into action, put up their chain link fences, moved um, all the arrivals over to the... Truman Annex. Remember the initial
1: assumptions about the boat lift. The Castro, needing to resolve the embarrassing situation at the Peruvian embassy, had agreed to allow Cuban Americans to pick up relatives, as long as they also took people who had sought asylum at the embassy, a one-for-one deal. In this scenario, the US could expect a total of 20,000 Cuban refugees. But by the time 20,000 refugees had landed in Key West, there were still hundreds of boats waiting for passengers in Mariel Harbor. The Coast Guard threatened boat captains with fines. They impounded boats on return. But it wasn't enough. Refugees arrived in Key West four times faster than the government had prepared for. The processing was slow. The barracks, filled shoulder to shoulder with army cots, were so overcrowded that some refugees took to sleeping on the lawn.
8: Initially, they were family groups, relatives, um, grandfathers, you know, who'd kiss the ground when they arrived. And then after a few weeks, sort of the composition began to change. I, I started to notice there were boats arriving. They were all men.
2: Hundreds, thousands of single men. Look at their shoes, a Marine mutters as the long lines shuffle forward. They all have the same shoes, Cuban prison issue. But so far,
8: none of the refugees have left, except 62 suspected criminals who are among a group of more than 100 transferred from all over Florida to a federal prison in Talladega, Alabama.
3: And there is a continuing concern that Fidel Castro is emptying his jails and forcing boat captains to take undesirables to the United States.
8: I remember reading at the time, this was from one of the southern states, uh, um, local sheriff's department had put out like a bulletin, be on the lookout for these tattooed men capable of the most horrendous crimes, gangs of Spanish-speaking men, and I realized Oh, my gosh, they're talking about the Mariel refugees. These rumors just sort of went crazy.
6: This is old and falling apart. So these are photos from the boat left. Oh, yeah. These pictures, that's my dad, in Mariel. Mm. You see the backdrop?
4: Yeah, that is a lot of boats. Hold on. A minute.
6: Well, we were boat number 50. To get down there? To arrive. Yeah.
4: to arrive. We've come to the city of South Miami to see Marta Carbonell. A few doors down, a peacock strolls in a neighbor's yard. Marta was born in Cuba, in the city of Mariel, actually. Her father was the mayor of the town before the revolution. She was baptized in the church there. She remembers her grandfather's sisal farm on the outskirts of town. Her parents left shortly after the revolution, and so Marta mostly grew up in Florida, in the exile community.
6: That's my dad's boat. That was the boat's maiden voyage. This boat wasn't ready. It was a Bertram he had, had ordered. So it was almost done. It wasn't even outfitted properly. And I remember being in the office with him, and I had my dress and my heels, and he said, somebody just called me, there's going to be a boat lift or something. Something's going on.
4: So Marta grabbed some clothes, some boat shoes, and all the canned goods she had in the house. They were going to take the brand new 46-foot Bertram to Marielle to try and bring Marta's grandfather to the U.S.
6: Dad said, OK, on in," And we took off. But before we took off, my dad said, I'm going to ask permission. And he said, I'm going to talk to the head of the Truman Annex, the the military or Coast Guard person, and he says, I want permission to go get my father. And the officer said, I cannot give you permission, but I give you my blessing. And I heard that. And he said, we have the blessing. Let's go.
4: (laughs) So we left. They spent a few weeks in Moriel Harbor waiting, and finally the grandfather showed up. But Marta's father wasn't allowed to leave without taking 40 additional people. Who are the 40 other people? You don't know. It
6: could be people from, from the jails. They emptied maybe their jails. Maybe. They emptied their mental institutions. Mm-hmm. You don't know what you're going to get or how or why. So you put those at the bottom so you can see them. You go to the flying bridge because mm-hmm. you don't know who you're bringing or what, what their intentions are. Mm-hmm.
4: You don't know who you're bringing or what their intentions are. This sort of suspicion about who was being loaded onto their boats was something that every boat captain we talked to remembered feeling. As these boats returned to Key West, American reporters like Mimi Whitefield were there to greet them.
8: There was a a very large ship. Its name was America. And its impending arrival was... um, Talked about for weeks and weeks before it ever got there. Cuba sort of, I think, said, "Okay, America, you know, you want these people with open hearts and open arms. This is what we're going to send you.
4: The America had been chartered by a group of Cuban exiles in Miami to pick up 484
2: relatives. Yesterday, the America returned with 700 refugees, none of them relatives of the people who chartered the boat.
1: The choice that we were given by the Cuban government once we entered the port was that we had to leave with 600 political and common prisoners.
8: When that ship, the America, arrived, it was abundantly clear that there was a conscious decision on the part of the Cuban authorities to sort of salt these voyages with people that they wanted to get rid of.
4: The America arrived just a few weeks into the boat lift, days after President Carter announced the U.S. would welcome the refugees with an open heart and open arms. And the story of the America was taken by many as confirmation. Castro was emptying his jails. And it wasn't just in South Florida. It was on the front page of the New York Times and led national newscasts that night. And it seems to be here, at this moment, that the perception of the boat lift shifted. It's like a switch was flipped. The Mario Cubans were no longer being talked about as refugees seeking freedom, but instead as common criminals and vagrants being dumped by Castro into U.S. soil. In fact, years later, a study of the Miami Herald's coverage of the boat lift showed that for the first weeks, the stories were generally positive. But in the last week of May, negative characterizations of the Cubans in the boat lift made up 90% of the paper's Mariel coverage.
8: Turn right on Northwest 5th Avenue. Then turn right on Northwest 37th
1: Street. What? Yeah, go right here. We just did this. Yeah, well, we're just driving around the block. (laughs) As the city of Miami grew, it became crisscrossed by elevated highways. At the interchange of I-95, the Dolphin Expressway, and 395, there was once a thriving neighborhood called Overtown, the historic center of the city's black community. So it's right there on the overpass. Welcome to Historic Overtown, established in 1896. Overtown was likened to a southern Harlem, but the construction of the interstate overpass had displaced half the population by 1965 and left a lasting injury to black Miamians. By 1980, a quarter of the city's population was black, but they had the lowest wages and the highest unemployment rate. And then came the story of Arthur McDuffie.
2: Miami, Florida, National Guardsmen and police have virtually sealed off a 20-square-mile area where rioting overnight in the Black community took at least nine lives and injured about 120 people.
1: Arthur McDuffie, a Black insurance salesman, was beaten to death by police after a traffic stop in December of 1979. Four officers were charged in the beating, and their trial began in April of 1980. The not-guilty verdict, handed down by an all-white jury, unleashed a wave of grief and anger, which resulted in riots that consumed the black neighborhoods of Overtown and Liberty City. So what does this have to do with Marielle? Nothing, except for the impression it lent to many Miamians, especially white Miamians. The riots happened at the end of a two-week stretch that saw more than 40,000 Cuban refugees arrive from Marielle. It was the peak of the boatload. And the images of all these Mariel refugees pouring off overcrowded boats and the swirling rumors of Castro emptying the jails, it all served the narrative that the city was out of control. A narrative that was crystallized by a famous cover story from Time magazine that claimed the challenges facing Miami, quote, threatened to turn one of the nation's most prosperous, congenial, and naturally gorgeous regions into a paradise lost.
5: That was a very significant year, You had the Madiel situation, the
1: aftermath. You had the the Liberty City riots, and then you had the cocaine cowboys. That's Roberto Fabricio. Roberto was born in Cuba and came to the U.S. as a teenager the year after the revolution. In 1980, he was editor of the Spanish-language insert in the Miami Herald. The cocaine cowboys, he mentions. Remember, that's the catch-all term for the drug cartels mostly from Colombia that set up shop in Miami in the late 70s. Think cigarette boats, automatic weapons, basically the world of Scarface. And their arrival in the city had brought a shocking rise in the crime rate. In 1979, there had been a record number of homicides in Miami-Dade County. 1980 was already shaping up to be far more violent. By the middle of March, before the boat lift even began, there had already been over 100 homicides.
5: I mean, Miami was sort of like, like Baghdad, you know? It was, uh,
1: it was a, a very unpleasant place. So Miami was in the midst of a transformation from a somewhat provincial tourist town with a southern lilt to what many Miamians consider it today, the cultural, political, and financial capital of Latin America. Between 1960 and 1980, nearly half a million Cubans had come to settle in Miami. And the Cuban community had spent those 20 years gaining power and influence throughout South Florida.
5: Up until then, the Cuban uh, refugees had been a shining example of... uh hardworking people who came with nothing, uh, fleeing communism, and uh, they're doing okay.
7: They're not, uh, you know, creating problems so, and yeah, This is a massive
4: problem, you know? When Mariel breaks out, it's a real shock to the system. That's Michael Bustamante, a Cuban-American professor of history at the University of Miami, who's written extensively about the Mariel boatlift and the uneasy place it occupies in Cuban and Cuban-American memory.
7: Migration from Cuba had more or less uh, been cut off, and all of a sudden there's this mass influx of people, and they're very different than the Cuban exiles who had come in the 1960s. They have different life experiences, different class
4: backgrounds. They had lived more of socialist Cuba. The first Cuban refugees to arrive in the U.S. after the revolution were by and large members of the professional class. Many were wealthy and well-educated, and they mostly came together as family units. And there was something else. They were mostly light-skinned. Or, to use the racial categories of this country, white. But the wave of Mariel refugees was much different. Not only did they skew more working class and less educated, but estimates say that about a third of the people in the boatlift were Afro-Cuban, dark-skinned. Or, to use the racial categories of this country, Black. In the early
7: 60s, Cuban-Americans very quickly were able to kind of lean into whiteness in a, a city coming out of the legacy of Jim Crow. Cubans were tracked into what had been historically white schools in Miami. I think it was easy to grow up in Miami in the 60s and 70s and not really th- confront race as a factor in Cuban culture and life. There are stories that I've heard of you know, folks coming from Marial who are Cubans of color and you know, young Cuban-Americans growing up here and,
4: and realizing, like, wait a second, I've never seen a Cuban like you. Right. You know, I I didn't think in my world that Cuban could be black. The Mario Cubans weren't seen as the so-called golden exiles, families disembarking planes at the Miami airport. There were plenty of families who came on the boat lift, but that's not what grabbed the headlines. There's a racial element to this
7: suspicion and stereotype. Absolutely. Without question.
1: One afternoon, we drive up to Miami Lakes in the northwest corner of the county to meet Fabiola Santiago, a longtime Miami reporter and now columnist for The Herald. Fabiola's got a houseload of people in town, so she's asked that we meet somewhere nearby. We call up a local music studio to see if they have an empty space we can rent for the interview, and we don't realize it until we get there, but we've rented a room in the studio of the Miami rapper Pitbull, Mr. 305. Incidentally, his Cuban-born father had chartered a boat himself to pick up refugees during Mariel.
2: <laughs> wait, wait. Oh man, I should have done my hair. <laughs> you mean to, to take my
1: hair? Fabiola taking a selfie. You gotta get the, you gotta get the selfie in uh, Pitbull Studio. <laughs>
2: For sure. So what do you need to do? Mike me up, or? Anything? No, I'm just, gonna, I'm just gonna.
1: Fabiola was born in Cuba and left with her family after the revolution. She began her reporting career as an intern with the Miami Herald in the spring of 1980.
2: Look, when I walked into the Miami Herald newsroom in 1980, the Miami that I saw there was totally foreign to me. And I came in, and all I could see in those seats, just seat after seat after seat, white men in button-down, white shirts, blue shirts, and then I remember one yellow. And then there were... Dotted women. Just very few women.
1: Fabiola had gotten the job largely because she convinced the men who hired her that they didn't have enough Spanish speakers to cover an increasingly Spanish-speaking community. And that was becoming all the more apparent as the boat lift began.
2: I was kind of upset by it because I was reading the coverage. And everything in the Miami Herald said, Officials say the refugees blank. Officials say blah, 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 blah. And they were like really the best writers and minds in the Miami Herald, quoting third hand, whatever. And I said, um, why don't we tell the story from the people's point of view?
1: So they let her do some stories about the Mariel arrivals. And that's why we wanted to talk with her. If it was true that some who came over on the boatlift had come from Cuban prisons, how many people were we talking about?
2: There was always a lot of suspicion about their criminality based on then the stories that became the sensation, which I also covered. I was sent to do, for example, man-on-the-street kind of interviews, and uh, I remember being with a um, Herald photographer. We found this guy on the street in Flagler who was beady-eyed, and we went to talk with him. He was moving around in a bizarre Mm -hmm. manner, and we'd heard that the Mariel refugees who were alone and you know we're hanging around there but you know we settle him down and we talk with him and sure enough he said he had been in in prison and that he had been put on this boat and that he had he had run away from some place where they were holding him
4: one of the things we'd really love to fact check is the degree to which cuba released prisoners for the boat left mostly just because it, it is such a powerful rhetorical uh, tool the U.S. government uses later to say like worst of the worst, capture empties jails.
2: Well, I can tell you firsthand that I saw the that I interviewed the criminals. Right, I can tell you that, and that they told me they had been taken out of prisons. They were not shy about hiding anything. Right?
1: Yeah, I. You know the the, the criminal thing we we're really just trying to see if there's any way to figure out the numbers you know because it becomes oh. this issue where you hear everything from 40,000 of the mariel cubans were criminal to
2: 40,000 yeah. it was not it was not okay it was an exception to literally find them on the street corner i have never negated the fact that there was an important significant angle to the criminal issue. I haven't negated it. But I think to cast 125,000 people in a certain way because of what Fidel Castro did with whatever number that is, the 5,000 or, I don't know, maybe it could be 10,000, 8,000, 6,000, I don't know. But there were nowhere, nowhere near 40,000 marial criminals. That's just like not true.
4: But what was true? As we talked to reporters and others who'd been in Miami in 1980, who'd covered Marielle, seen the boats arrive with their own eyes, even interviewed people who admitted that they'd come on those boats from Cuban prisons, we always felt a little nearsighted. The snapshots they described to us were always sharp and in focus. The America entering the port in Key West, the beady-eyed guy on Flagler, the long line of single men on the dock, all wearing the same kind of shoes, Cuban prison issue. But whenever we looked up from those images of specific encounters, everything got really blurry. On the ground, eyewitness reporting couldn't give us the full extent of the situation. Okay, so the number of criminals wasn't 40,000, but it wasn't zero either. We needed a sense of scale, a top-down view. So as we drove around Miami, we kept piecing together how things had gone down on the other side of the Florida Straits. One guy we talked to in Miami, he was living in Havana in 1980, and his brother was serving time in a Cuban prison. That spring, he told us, he went to check on his brother at the prison. But then, the next he heard from him, it was months later, and the brother had left in the boat lift and was now living in New York City. The brother died 20 years ago, so we couldn't ask him directly about his experience. But when we asked the guy in Miami how they'd heard that the Cuban government was allowing prisoners to leave, he couldn't remember any formal announcement. It was just a story that was in the air. The Cubans have a term for this. Radio bimba. Lip radio. Gossip. The word on the street. We got in the habit of scanning radio bimbo always on the lookout for interesting signals. And during one of our reporting trips to Miami, Radio Bimba played a tune so alluring that we got lost in it for days.
1: On the far western edge of Miami-Dade County, right up against the Everglades, there's a place called Doral. It's got a Trump golf course and lots of gated communities. Chip and Connor and I drove out there after lunch one day to meet with a man who wouldn't let us record his voice or use his name, because even though he's been in the U.S. for nearly 30 years, he's still a polarizing figure in the Cuban-American community. For a long time, he was a close friend of Fidel Castro and had high-level access to all sorts of state secrets and machinations. Eventually, though, his relationship with Castro soured. He was put on house arrest before finally managing to get out of Cuba and settle in South Florida. We'd been referred to this man in Doral by someone we trusted, who told us that he could be helpful in vetting this rumor we'd come across, that he knew everybody. And so if he himself didn't know the answer, he would know who would know the answer. Anyway, the rumor was this, that the Cuban government not only gave prisoners the option of leaving for the U.S. through Mariel, but that Castro himself was intimately involved in the process that he'd broken the prison population up into a half-dozen or so categories and calibrated the number and type of prisoners he'd allowed to leave from Mariel each day based on the statements of U.S. government officials and the coverage of the boatlift in the U.S. media.
4: On May 1st, 1980, just a couple of weeks into the boatlift, Fidel Castro delivered a May Day speech in Havana's Revolution Square before a crowd estimated at more than a million people. It's that same speech, actually, that appears at the beginning of Scarface. The official title of the speech was, Our Criminals Are Leaving to Their Allies in the U.S. But in the speech, Castro made no reference to anyone actually leaving from prison. Instead, he labeled the entire group of Mario Cubans as lumpen, scum who lacked revolutionary blood, who, quote, do not have the heart to adapt to the effort of heroism required by a revolution. Castro says, we do not want them, we do not need them. Later on in the speech, Castro does mention that the boat lift has attracted thugs and delinquents. But again, no reference to emptying out his prisons and sending convicted criminals on the boats. And for years, whenever he was asked about it, Castro denied that Cuba sent convicts directly from prisons to the U.S.
1: When we talked on the phone to schedule a time to meet, I'd mentioned all this to our man in Doral. And he said... Okay, we'll talk about it all when you get here. It was December when we visited him, and his front yard was filled with Christmas decorations. He invited us in and introduced us to his wife, who'd left Cuba with him. She pointed to a big cardboard box on the dining room table and said they'd just received a leg of cured ham from a friend in Spain. She asked if we'd help unpackage it and carve it, and so we did. And as we worked on the ham, they poured everyone glasses of scotch. Good scotch. It was two o'clock in the afternoon. We talked about their lives in Cuba, their adventures in the United States. There were mentions of interrogation trainings in Czechoslovakia and vague references to encounters with the CIA. And then it was 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We would put a dent in the ham, but we hadn't talked at all about the rumor we'd come to discuss. Finally, though, he said, Sorry, I don't know much about Marielle, about that rumor. He looked at his wife and she nodded. And he said, But we do have a friend who could tell you about all this. We'll ask him if he'll talk to you. His wife pointed to the table and said, Actually, he's the one who sent the ham.
4: Later, we got an email from Doral. Sorry, man. Our friend doesn't want to collaborate. Believe me that I did my best. We wrote back to thank them for their hospitality and for trying to connect us to their friend. He responded, We always welcome you. The Alabama ham trio. Ham or not ham, this is your house. So Doral was a dead end. Memorable, but still a dead end. The Alabama ham trio had struck out. But the next rabbit hole we went down trying to suss out this rumor ended with more than good ham and good scotch. We found someone with an insider's knowledge of the Castro regime. Someone who would talk to us with a microphone on. That's after this. It's Been a Minute is a culture show you
6: don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. NPR.
0: With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format. So you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this
1: newsletter. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at the indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss Indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food,
4: sometimes all three.
6: So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon
8: to afford your Uh eggs. I'll be here all week.
4: Wrap up your week and listen to the
1: Indicator podcast from NPR.
8: Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on how people are taking action in the face of climate change, the many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present, and how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the shortwave podcast from NPR.
5: The early years of the revolution were years of enthusiasm, dedication, devotion, you name it. Those who followed the revolution dedicated their lives to serve, and to be part of that. But all of this began to cool down after
4: 1975, mid-70s. Before leaving Cuba for the U.S. in 1994, Domingo Amuchastegui worked for more than 30 years as an officer and diplomat in Cuba's foreign ministry. We arranged to meet him one day at a library in the middle of town and found a quiet place to talk.
5: The image of... Cubans leaving Cuba and going to the United States was creating a very negative image for the Cuban authorities. This massive migration really undermined the vision, the prestige of the Cuban Revolution. Because if you have more than 100,000 people just desperate to leave, so there was a big problem for the Cuban government. What to do now?
4: I would just he confirmed that the Cuban government had offered prisoners the chance to leave from Mariel to help sell the idea to the Cubans and the Americans that everyone leaving was lumpen scum who lacked revolutionary blood.
5: We solve two problems at the same time:
4: we modify
5: the international image, and second, we clean our penitentiary system All the delinquents of every sort.
4: Was this option officially articulated to everyone, or was it just the the rumors just circulated until they reached everyone who needed to hear? How, how were these prisoners given this option to leave?
5: Well, it, it was not just a
4: rumor. There was
5: no public official announcement of any sort. The Ministry of Interior went prison by prison asking... For which of them wanted to join the boatlift. By putting these prisoners as part of the deal, he had the opportunity to say, ah, the kind of population that is leaving are the scum society.
4: We found a reference that Castro himself was intimately involved in the the daily regulating the flow day-to-day of these prisoners? Absolutely.
5: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. He was on top of what was going on minute after minute, day after day, because he realized that it was a very complex operation in which he could project a negative image. And perhaps that is the most important part of this
4: story, so in 1980, Castro was involved in this on a day to day basis because it was so important to to get this to get the boat lift as right as one possibly could to, to project the right yeah. image. Yeah. Do, Do you, you think Cuba would have kept records of that? Records of that?
1: Sure. How would one go about finding something like that?
5: Well, obviously, in the Ministry of Interior, there is a very detailed record of. The prison population that lived through Mariel in those days, the documentation is there. Numbers,
1: names, everything was regulated. If you were an American journalist, how would you go about confirming the number of people that left the prisons?
5: Sir, those numbers are in the Minister of Interior. And only the minister and the minister's boss,
7: would we'll have access to those numbers. Forget it. There's all kinds of, I think, problems when it comes to the numbers around Marielle in general, Just especially when it comes to this question of, of people who uh, had quote-unquote criminal backgrounds.
1: That's Michael Bustamante again. We'd been driving around Miami talking to all kinds of people to get a better sense of the reality behind the rumors that Castro had emptied his jails. But finding the number seemed elusive at best. And maybe
7: we weren't even asking the right question in the first place. In terms of the numbers, I mean, I think, I think one other really important contextualizing thing here is that what did it mean to spend time in prison in Cuba? Later, a government task force would issue a report that
1: listed all sorts of reasons why Mariel refugees had been in prison in Cuba. Refusal to join the Communist Party, refusal to work, refusal to join the army, loitering,
7: drinking, gambling, even being gay. What percentage of those folks might have been in prison for more politically motivated things, right? In Cuba, there is this very strange thing in the legal code, just as one example, of what's called pre-crime social dangerousness, where the Cuban government can imprison you because you are demonstrating a propensity to commit a crime rather than having committed one already. This crime,
1: peligrosidad, was put on the books in the late 1970s. They first used the law as a pretext to clear the streets of Havana before a visit by the leader of the Soviet Union. The law allowed Cuban officials to imprison anyone solely on the suspicion that they will commit a crime in the
7: future. You know, what percent of those folks had been in jail because they were participating in the black market? What percent of those folks were in jail because they had uh, been involved in in, um, in theft to, to deal with uh, scarcity?
2: What is actually criminal activity in a country like Cuba.
1: That's Fabiola Santiago again.
2: Because there's a lot of people labeled criminal who actually were trying to feed their kids, were trying to do things that in a normal country you wouldn't have to do. It reminds me of our trips to the countryside to get food when we were in Cuba. My mom had to pretend to be pregnant when we got to the checkpoint because... You know, her belly was full of, you know, vegetables and meat. And it was scary, right, to to live like that. And you would argue that my dad then was doing something illegal. You weren't allowed to, to get any more than your ration book provided. And so we happened to have relatives in the countryside that we visited and got goods from. So, yeah, my dad would have gone to jail. Had, you know, had the guy questioned my mom's pregnancy, we we would he would have been labeled a criminal. And so you have to really question that about people who were just thrown into prison and called criminals in this country.
1: One of the very first things that happened to the arriving refugees from Marielle was an interview with the INS. And for those who were suspected of having criminal records, they were sent to a federal prison in Alabama, Talladega, Alabama. By the third week of the boatlift, immigration authorities had already detained 250 Cuban refugees at the Talladega Federal Correctional Institution, and the New York Times sent a reporter there to cover a brief press conference featuring these men. They were perplexed at why they were being held. Their spokesman was a 42-year-old mechanic from Havana. When asked at the docks of Key West if they'd ever been in prison, they'd answered truthfully. The last day I was in jail was April 1956, said one man. I was a kid, stealing something from a shop. I haven't been in jail since. Another said, in Cuba now, you either have to have great luck or be a communist if you have not been arrested. Of the rumors that the boatlift was filled with criminals, one man told the reporter, that is what Fidel Castro would like you to believe. That is what they've been saying all along, that only delinquents and degenerates would want to leave their paradise.
3: You know, I'll just give you this one example. Alberto
4: Herrera. That's Mark Hamm. He worked as a prison warden in Arizona before leaving to become a professor of criminology and a prison reform advocate. And in the late 80s, he found himself representing a handful of Mariel Cubans who were detained in the federal prison in Terre Haute. One of his clients was Alberto Herrera.
3: This goes back to 1971. He was 18 years old and he walked into a grocery store in Havana and hid a 2-pound package of goat cheese under his under his jacket. Walked uh, uh, walked out of the store and started running toward home. The militias captured him uh, and threw him in prison. Uh, he spent years in prison and was eventually uh, put on the Mario boat lift and ends up in the federal prison. I mean, prison had beaten him down so bad. He, I mean, he was when I saw him, he was. Uh, uh, he was just barely in his thirties, and he looked seventy. No teeth, and shuffled, and he was all bent over. And he was, he was a, he was, he was a sad situation. And, and, and prison had killed him. The, um, the American prison system had killed him. Castro's system had killed him. Uh, he had no hope. Didn't have any family. And that by this time he spent damn near twenty years in prison for the theft of two pounds of goat cheese. We found records
4: about Alberto Herrera in a box in the basement of the Atlanta Legal Aid Society. Herrera spent over a decade on American soil, all of it in federal prisons, without ever having committed a crime in this country. The last trace of him in the files was a deportation notice. He was deported on January 10, 1991, and died back in Cuba. When Ham took the case of people like Alberto Herrera, he saw their immigration files, and what he found there didn't square with the received wisdom about the boat lift. So he decided to study the question of criminality in a more comprehensive way.
3: There were movements at the time to make the suggestion that Fidel Castro had opened up his prisons and filled those boats with his nation's hardened criminals and sent them to the United States as sort of a here you go here's a here's a present from Fidel to Jimmy Carter. So what I did was t- to take on that myth of the dangerous Marielle. I focus on the criminal backgrounds of these people, and here is what I found. I guess I asked for some indulgence because I'm going to go through some numbers here. I found that of that number, 120,000 plus, uh, only 350 were found by the INS to have serious criminal backgrounds. That's fewer than one-half of 1% of the total number of Cubans who came to the United States via the port of Marielle.
4: research led him to conclude that only 350 of the Mariel refugees had a serious criminal background. In June of 1980, the director of the U.S. Office of Refugee Resettlement estimated that the number of Mariel Cubans who posed a quote, security risk was between 700 and 800. And he went on, calling the perception that the boat lift was filled with the worst of the worst, quote, the big lie. A decade later, the U.S. State Department Coordinator for Cuban Affairs wrote in an internal memo that the boatlift brought, quote, hundreds of criminals. Not thousands, not 10,000, not 25,000, certainly not 40,000. Even the highest number we've heard from someone who seriously studied the data suggested that 3% of the boatlift population could have had a serious criminal background. That's around
3: 3,500 people. Now, uh, just to... um give some comparison in the same year 1980 approximately 6000 out of every 100,000 US residents committed a major index crime according to the uniform crime reports so i look at this as a way to empirically debunk destroy eliminate dispense with this notion of the dangerous marielitos fidel castro did not empty his prisons of the worst of the worst that's apocryphal you know, the, these were, by and large, these are working-class people. These were laborers and, and seamstresses. These were construction workers, welders, healthcare people. They weren't those vagrants, murderers. They weren't that. They weren't scum. Uh, but nonetheless, that is the image that has uh, persevered. Thank you, Al, Al Pacino. Thank you, Oliver Stone. Thank you, Scarface.
1: That image persevered because sometimes the theater feels like history. The truth is, the crime rate in Miami was increasing as the boat lift unfolded. The greater Miami area was inundated with tens of thousands of new arrivals who were jobless, who had no income, and in many cases, no place to live. It did feel like the city was changing in irreparable ways. But the many reasons why all this was happening, the history of it all, was complicated. And when things get complicated, when it feels like everything is changing all at once, when people feel scared, that's when a simple story can be the most seductive.
3: There are a lot of criminals who came over in the Mariel boat lift, and we are paying the price now. We
2: have been invaded by aliens from outer space. They're psychologically totally not even human. They're animals, not even animals. That's an insult to the animal kingdom. They have no human attributes whatsoever.
1: And the easiest and oldest kind of American theater is to find dangerousness and criminality in the other, to pin all the problems, all the sins, all the changes, and all the blame on an easy scapegoat. The Mario Cubans were the perfect players to be cast in the role of criminal alien. And where they were headed next would be even more harrowing than Miami. The Klan was there, being obnoxious. Don't let them in, they're criminals,
8: they're communists.
1: That's next time on White Lies.
4: want to hear our next episode now before everyone else sign up for embedded plus at plus.npr.org embedded or find the embedded channel in apple it's a great way to support our work and you'll get to listen to the entire season sponsor free that's plus.npr.org embedded
1: white lies is reported written and produced by us and connor town o'neill liana simstrom is our supervising producer annie yetzi is our associate producer Robert Little edits the show with help from Bruce Oster, Keith Woods, Christopher Turpin, and Kamala
4: Kelker. Our incredible score is composed and performed by Jeff T. Bird. Emily Bogle is senior visual editor. Barbara Van Workum is our fact checker. We had production help from Pablo Aguayas. The director of audio engineering is Sean Phillips. Audio engineering supervisor is Isaac Rodriguez. Special thanks to Radiohead for the use of their song, The National Anthem, courtesy of XL Recordings. Archival tape in this episode comes from NBC, CBS, and Miami-Dade College's Wolfson Archives.
1: Special thanks to Ciro del Castillo, Elsa Delgado, Angel Rojas, and Studio Center 305. The staff of the Westminster Regional Library in Miami, Richard Green at Indiana State University, Bill Leogrand, and Nick Griffin. We're grateful for the work of Michael Ratner and NPR's legal team, and Tony Kavan, NPR's Standards and Practices Editor. Our project manager is Margaret Price. Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of NPR's Enterprise Storytelling Unit. And Anya Grunman is NPR's Senior Vice President for Programming and Audience Development.
8: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Betterment. The drama of having an enemy turned lover is never chill, but your investing portfolio should be. Betterment is the investing app that lets you be totally chill about your finances. Their automated tech makes it easy to get in the market and stay in the market. Save the drama for that moment when you realize your mortal enemy is actually your soulmate. Betterment. Be invested and totally chill. Learn more at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle
1: school cafeteria, Ty Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies.
3: The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool.
1: And he often wondered,
3: Why am I so socially awkward? And what am I going to do about that?
1: Now Ty is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness. And he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
0: There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format, so you become a mini-expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash considerthisnewsletter.